Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, church. Uh, it's good to see everybody here this morning. Uh, I'm Pastor Tim Spivey. I get the blessing of preaching here most weekends. Uh, if you're joining us online, like many of our, our sickos here in the church are, uh, we want you to know we can't wait till you're back with us, and we miss you. Uh, get healthy. Come back to us soon. Uh, and we'll, we're, meanwhile, we're going to stay right here, keep studying the Bible, keep praising the Lord, and keep moving on. Now, ironically, today we're talking about loving God with your mind. And uh, right before I walked out here, uh, this is something that, by the way, in preacher land, there are a few like unwritten rules. And one of them is you don't, anytime you're, you're within, say, a song or so of going on stage, you don't drink coffee. All right? I did. And you'll see the, the evidence of it right here. So those of you who are going, oh, no, Tim's already sweating through his shirt. No, this is a good illustration in some ways of, uh, of the main thrust of the sermon today. We're talking about loving God with all of our mind. Uh, and it doesn't matter how learned you are. It doesn't matter how educated you are. You can be a fool in the sight of God. It doesn't matter how long you've been in the faith. It doesn't matter um, how well you think you know your Bible. A lot of people who think they know the Bible don't know it very well at all, like the Pharisees. So we're going to talk today about what it means to love God with our mind. And for those of you who weren't here last week, let's just begin here. This series is called Dedicated. And as Christians, we are dedicated to God. That's a, spoken of as a noun and a verb. A noun meaning it's a state, it's our identity, it's who we are. And then on the other hand, it's a verb. So we called it a nerb, uh, a noun and a verb. The verb is I am dedicating essentially. I am, I am uh, committed, all right? I'm committing myself. So that, that is what we're talking about, the full love of God, heart, mind, soul, and strength. So in Mark 12, Jesus says this as a person comes and asks him uh, what the greatest commandments in the law are. It says, one of the teachers of the law came and he heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him of all the commandments, which is the most important. The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So today we're going to be talking about what it means. We did heart last week. Today we're going to do mind. Next week we'll do soul. And I'm doing this, the, the way that we're building the series is we're kind of doing the foundational pieces of things. And then on the fourth one, we'll do some actual like habit tracking, like where you actually pick out some things that you're going to do. And I'll give you a couple of, uh, of them today, but I really want us to understand uh, what it means to love God with our mind. Because if we don't, then what you end up doing is thinking that the answer always lies in, uh, I got to learn more about the Bible. If I, if I just learn how to spell Habakkuk right, I'll be that much closer to Jesus. And that, that really is not the biblical view of what it means to love God with your mind. In the Bible, loving God with your mind is about activating this gift of God, that which separates us from everybody else on this planet, the mind, uh, and to activate it in service of God to discover his will, to activate it in such a way that we're carrying out God's will here on the earth, and, and to continue to explore horizons that frankly never get, can be fully discovered. Keep going and, and keep praying and keep uh, digging into the profound mysteries of the Bible and, and getting to learn the Bible better. I will tell you, Mark 12, the passage we just read, is one of the most familiar passages in all of the Bible. But it is one of the most seldomly lived passages in the Bible. So you can know it, okay, you can learn it and memorize it, but 
you can be thoroughly not honoring God with your mind by virtue of the fact that you're not following it. And from a biblical perspective, uh, honoring God with your mind includes not just rational assent or bing, the light bulb went on, I understand what he's saying. That's not what it means to know biblically. Knowing means I understand it, I accept it, and I do it. That's how you love God with your mind. Uh, I want to begin talking about just the glory of our brains and how, how they work. And so I'm going to go where you, where you would assume. Let's talk about shower heads. We're going to talk about shower heads. And so I'm a tall guy. And uh, for most people that are, say, 5'11 or higher, there is an ongoing struggle. When you check into a hotel, uh, that when you get and you open the shower curtain and you get into the shower, that the shower head is like right here. It's in the wall right here. So in order for me to take a shower, I have to, I mean, look at these two kids. They're experiencing the pain. I don't know how tall they are, but they look, it looks to me like they've got the kind of shower head that I've experienced in other places, including the, 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 the house that I just moved into. It had a shower head put essentially at like, like cleavage height for me or something. It's like right here. And so in order for me to take a shower, I have to get down underneath like this to wash my hair. And it's incredibly annoying. Now, it's great for my wife, who happens to be 5'2". So it works great for her. Any hotel, she's good. But we moved into this house, and I thought to myself, you know what I've always wanted? I've never had one of those rainforest shower heads. I mean, look at this glorious picture here. Look at this. On the left, it's like it's pouring out glory upon whomever. And that's one big rain shower head. And this gal, I don't know what kind of shower head that is, but it's, it's pouring and she's having the time of her life. And I thought to myself, I go, isn't that an example of how we just, we see an innovation, we go, okay, we can put it here or we can put it up over the top like that and create one for tall people. And then we can create ADA things for inside the shower. And then we can create different kinds of soap and different kinds of shampoo and different kinds of product and, and uh, razors you can use in the shower that are better in the shower than doing whatever. We find a way to create and innovate because we have amazing minds. God put that in us. So when you create something, when you learn something, when you use your mind to do something that glorifies God, you're reflecting the creator in whose image you're made. God is all-knowing. We're not. He's all-knowing, but by virtue of being created in his image, we are created as knowing beings. Not all-knowing, just knowing. We can think, okay? Um, we're given these amazing minds capable of curing diseases and uh, Inventing the street taco at the same time. Uh, capable of building a rocket that can reach faraway planets and the smartphone and world-class coffee. God gives us minds that can understand him in ways that no other creature can. Because we're made in his image and we alone are made in his image. And conversely, we have minds that are capable of rebelling against God in ways that nobody else can. So our mind, when I speak of it, okay, is including... Bear with me for just a second. We're going to get a little uh, philosophical here. All right. It includes all of our cognitive capacities, thoughts, ideas, images, beliefs, and our feelings are kind of tied in with that, kind of from a biblical perspective. Um, they're intertwined with our thoughts, okay? So other terms that kind of are related to the mind are terms like envision, study, 
remember, reason, believe. But our mind is bigger than our brain. It is more than matter. It encompasses our experience, too. Our minds can interact with visible realities and invisible realities. We believe uh, something, um, it, it's not just professing, if you will, the right answer, but it's knowing things as reality and experiencing them is true. So the heart then, <clears throat> which we talked about last week, actually works off of the mind. What we let in shapes our heart in some very important ways. And so part of loving God, we talked about this a little bit last week, is being careful of what you let in because that will shape your heart. And then if, if you let the good stuff in, it's likely to shape your heart in very good ways. And if you let terrible things in, it's likely to shape your heart in some very bad ways. All right? So um, God creates us with minds, with the capacity to think. We're not plants. We're not rocks. We're created in his image. And so when we think, we reflect our maker. However, we also need to acknowledge our thinking is not the same as his. His thoughts are purer, they're deeper, and far more vast than ours could ever be. The prophet Isaiah uh, writes of this, he, he puts this on the lips of God. He says, as the heavens are higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. He's saying, your, your thoughts, Isaiah says, are, God's thoughts are so much higher than yours, it almost defies description. As far as the heaven is from the earth, like East from the west, just night and day, he thinks at a level we can't think with a purity of thought and a goodness of thought that we can't grasp. Our thoughts aren't his thoughts, but our thoughts can be of him, and we can understand his will, we can learn from our mistakes, we can learn from watching the example of Jesus, and we use our minds then in our vocations to glorify God. So if I'm a teacher, I'm using my brain to help Others learn how to think. I'm learning, I know how to educate. I try to learn how to educate better so that in the classroom, uh, I'm helping grow people. I'm helping uh, devote myself to, to uh, learning and to helping uh, young people grow in their intellectual capacity, their ability to, to, to put bread on the table when they're later in life. I mean, there's a lot of dimensions to that, but that, that goes for chemists and it goes for um, you know, uh, people who are public speakers and people who are in the clergy and people who... Uh, operate roller coasters. There's a vocation that God gives you, and the knowledge that you have is something that contributes to a healthy society, a healthier, better world when it's devoted to God. Now, the mind, bear with me here, has little to do with education. Very little. Though education can help grow the mind. Biblically, loving God with our mind means to understand His will to devote ourselves to understanding him, his will, his ways, while keeping our minds pure from evil, okay? So when we're doing that, the mind is glorious, and it's awesome, and it's a tremendous asset to us in daily life, and it leads you to understand God in ways that are amazing, and we help reflect his image in society, and we improve the world that we're living in as God would see fit, but boy, 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 uh, when we rebel against God with the mind, boy, it gets south real fast. Sixth chapter of Genesis. Adam and Eve have been created, already uh, have the fall because they partook of a particular fruit from a particular tree. Do you remember what it was called? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
They were told not to. So the fall takes place. By Genesis chapter 6, God destroys the earth by flood. Why? Here's what the text says, Genesis 6, 5 through 6. The Lord saw the great wickedness of the human race that become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So by the time that you get to Genesis 6, uh, we are, we are, it's such a, 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 a bad thing that basically everything that man thinks about at that point in time, that humankind is thinking about, is evil. So understand the connection again between the mind and the heart. Okay, the mind and the heart are, uh, are, are connected to each other. And so it can reflect what's in our heart, what we dwell on all the time, like what's happening in Genesis 6. And then sometimes what we let into our head shapes the heart. All right, well, then you fast forward a little bit past that into Genesis uh, chapter 11, and there's another story. It's called the Tower of Babel. And in the Tower of Babel, God's destroyed the earth by flood, and, and we're repopulating the earth at that point. And it, humankind decides, now we're going to make a name for ourselves, they say. Let's make a name for ourselves and build a tower to heaven. And it says this. It says, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, get this, this is kind of eerie. He says, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. So God comes down, confuses the languages, and the rest is history. But even God says, a depraved mind, if they do it together, is a very powerful thing. He'd already experienced it in Genesis 6. Depraved minds in unison. Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, let's make a name for ourselves. And the problem is, see, the mind as the gateway to the soul, both, it, it's the gateway both coming and going. It's the gateway through which stuff goes in, and it's the place where both good or bad is planned and sent forth in life. It's out of the heart that the mouth speaks, but the heart is shaped by what it takes in, and the words we speak are put together in the mind. They work together. The Apostle Paul says of the ungodly in Romans chapter 1, he says, since they didn't think it worthwhile to retain knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness and depravity. But then later in Romans, he says, conversely, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, um, that will produce greater health in us spiritually, and it's something that's supposed to become part of when you come to Christ, the depraved mind that you had prior to is gone, and God gives you a new mind. He gives you a new place to be able to, um, to, to see things differently and to use the mind that God gave us for his glory rather than to rebel against him. So, uh, as we get into where we're going today, and we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, let me start us here. Dallas Willard, the philosopher, wrote, he said, if we allow everything access to our mind, we are simply asking to be kept in a state of mental turmoil or bondage, for nothing enters the mind without having an effect for good or evil. Okay? So renewing our minds, we're going to turn to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. And there in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he talks, he's talking to the church, and here's what he says. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. 
The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Get this. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Okay? So he says we don't let arguments against God just stand. We actually go and we combat them. And he says, and then with regards to our own thoughts, any thought we have, we take it and we make it obedient to Jesus. So a few points for us this morning, and then the sermon is yours. Let's start here. Our minds are God's gift to us and the world, all right, from a biblical perspective. Okay, our minds are given by God to help us know him. That's number one, to get to understand who he is, what his will is, and how he might call us to act in the world. We are made in the image of God who knows all things. So that doesn't mean that we know all things, though I know some people who think they know all things, okay? But it means that our curiosity, that desire to check something out, that desire to create, that desire to innovate, our thirst for knowledge, and what we can achieve with our minds transformed by the gospel as they grow, that, that is beautiful in the sight of God, and it's something that he put in us uniquely. When we create something, when, you, when somebody writes a song, when somebody innovates, when somebody has an idea, when, when they look and they see a problem they can solve and how to solve it, okay, those are examples of the divine spark of the creator within us. There are some people who seem to think for some reason that Christians are somehow supposed to be anti-intellectual or that they ought to be. Now, um, I'm just going to go ahead and get out here on a limb and just say that's absolutely the complete polar opposite of reality. Um, that glorifying God with your mind means that you do everything you can to build a mind that is strong and thriving and growing, and that if there's stuff to know about the universe that God created, then we strive to do that. I mean, the, the narrative out there has gotten so strong that I think uh, Christians almost, if they're in a workplace or they're in a university context or whatever, they don't want to tell anybody they're a Christian because they're going to be assumed uh, to be foolish or, or dumb or stupid. Or, or prone to believe fairy tales, or, or whatever the case may be, including, by the way, science. Now, most historically great scientists believed in a creator. Most believed in Jesus as God's son. Let me give you a few. Copernicus, Bacon, Kepler, Galileo, Descartes, Pascal, Newton, Boyle, Max Planck, who's actually the, the father of quantum theory, okay? And even Albert Einstein, who wasn't a Christian by any means, and he didn't really believe in a personal God, but he did believe the world was created. And yet we sit here and we go, well, Christians don't, they don't do science, sciences. We can't, you can't be a scientist and believe in a creator. There's hardly a scientist of any note that didn't believe in that. But somehow we've gotten into a, a, this weird model where we just take whatever Kool-Aid's being served that day by people who don't really know what they're talking about. And instead of doing what Paul says, which is to actually take those arguments that, that set themselves up against God, and instead of looking at it like, for instance, Francis Collins right now, he's retiring from the uh, National Institutes of Health, devout Christian man, I met him once up at Pepperdine. Um, you know, he, instead of looking at that or other great scientists and saying, okay, what did they, what did they understand about the world that made them go, this thing has to be created? It has to be, because the witness of history would be that it's hard to actually find a notable scientist, say, before, oh, I don't know, 1950, that would have said, oh, yeah, 
you know, and even to this day, there are many, many notable scientists that do it. Now, that's just science, right? And then when people take science and they apply it in a way that God wants, you get things like medicine. The largest healthcare provider in the world are the followers of Jesus in the world. The Catholic Church alone manages 26% of the world's healthcare facilities, just the Catholics, let alone all the other medical mission efforts, the hospitals. I mean, I had one daughter, uh, one daughter born at Dallas Presbyterian Hospital. Many of you have heard of St. Jude. I mean, you just go on and on and on. There are Baptist hospitals, Methodist hospitals, Presbyterian hospitals. When the disasters strike, who are the first people in there? I mean, you could just go on and on and on. During the Ebola virus, it was a Christian doctor by the name of Kent Brantley who ended up on the cover of Time magazine for being willing to get the virus himself by going and serving people who were sick and surviving it. Education. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, Duke, Georgetown, the list goes on and on. You got it. Started by Christians as Bible-believing schools. In fact, Harvard was started by a pastor to train clergy. That's how Harvard got started. They've veered a bit away from that at this point. Okay, but internationally, it's the same. Oxford, Cambridge, I mean, Christians are not anti-intellectual. It was knowledge that caused them to express their faith by starting universities, by studying the world that could be known in science. Here in California, USC, Pepperdine, I mean, if you go to USC and you walk in the, the entrance that I do when I go to a football game, there's a big statue there, and there's a big old stinking uh, quote with a scripture next to it and, and, a, and a guy talking about God and how important God is to the whole process of learning and everything. And I'm sitting there going, there's no resemblance to what's happening here now. But without those guys, those schools would not be there. They wouldn't be there, period. Knowledge applied to other societal problems. How about orphan care? What percentage of the children's homes do you think are founded, funded, and sustained by Christians? Almost all of them. Almost all of them. Christians give roughly double the amount of their money to charity. Christians are overwhelmingly first and the most persistent of all groups to work in disaster relief. How about homelessness? Who does the most there? Guess, guess who? Yep. Uh, care for the elderly? Same. Blood drives? Yep. They give the most blood. And you can just go down the list. And so even when uh, the state or the country supports certain things, they often do it through arms of the church, or things started by the church. Now, what is that? What am, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that what those things represent is when a Christian and groups of Christians allow God to take their minds captive and use them to help express obedience to God. They see it as, if God gave me the ability to be a doctor and heal people, then I want to use it in a way that I think God would be pleased with. And so for some, that's children's hospitals, right? Uh, I think God has a soft spot for children, they may say, and so I'm going to be the best doctor I can. Or, hey, God has given me wealth, and I want to support something that God would support with that. Okay? That's all faculty of the mind. It's not just the heart and the feelings. It's using this, which is a reflection of him. He's all-knowing, and we're slightly knowing and getting better every day. We'll never hit his point. His thoughts are not our thoughts, as we already talked about. But I think for those of us who are concerned about this uh, in, in just the different ways that are, you know, being, that I think people are being portrayed, mostly because it's convincing people who don't yet know Jesus that you have to leave your brain behind before you become a Christian. Um, you don't. 
just to be clear. Um, I mean, even, even, even witness, right? Our, our minds are what hold the knowledge that allow us to introduce people to Jesus. What he taught and how he can transform them from the inside out. When you hear phrases like knowledge is power, knowledge was not given for power. It was given for transformation. Number two, knowledge is useful, wisdom is better. In the Bible, knowledge and wisdom can be used interchangeably at times. So like if you're reading through Proverbs, sometimes it'll use knowledge, sometimes it'll use wisdom, and it'll use them interchangeably. But they are also at times distinguished in the Bible. Um, so when a person thinks that they know a lot, but then lose the corresponding humility that brought them to knowledge, made them hunger and thirst for knowledge, meaning for me to pursue knowledge means that I'm pursuing, I acknowledge that there's stuff I don't know. So when I'm, hunger, when I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for the things of God, trying to get to know God better, get to know the Bible better, it's, it's an act of humility that should drive me there. When a person tries to acquire that stuff to gain power or influence or whatever, they've already lost it. They've lost, they've kind of, they may have some weird secular knowledge, but they don't have true knowledge, biblically speaking. So for instance, in the New Testament, Jesus seems to be very frustrated with the Pharisees for not understanding the distinction. He talks to them about how much, you guys know all this stuff about the law, but you miss the weighty stuff, the stuff that God cares about. You think he cares as much about, say, tithing as he does justice. He doesn't. Don't neglect your tithing, but don't don't neglect justice. You need to do both. You can't just be over here thinking, okay, that's the big, the big deal. Um, when people, his apostles are walking through and they're grabbing some grain because they're hungry, and he goes, hey, 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 they're working on the Sabbath. He goes, hey, guys, guys, you're missing it. I know you know what the law says technically, but you don't know what it actually says or what it means. You have knowledge without wisdom. The letter of the law isn't the law without understanding the spirit of the law. In the same way, you know, in the university context, there are a lot of people who are degreed but not educated. There are Christians who think that they, I don't know, if they, again, if they know how to spell Habakkuk properly or they know the 12 tribes of Israel and they can rattle them off by size or by birth order or something like that, then that means that they're deep or that they're righteous they are not. And in fact, in reality, they are ignorant, misappropriating knowledge and putting the emphasis on the wrong syllables. God doesn't care if you can spell Habakkuk. He cares if you can read Habakkuk, take its lessons to heart, and obey them. That's what he cares about. So it doesn't matter if a person comes to, to the Lord Jesus and, um, and doesn't know anything. That doesn't mean that they're down here. In fact, Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Childlike faith pleases God. Now, there are other passages of Scripture that say you're expected to grow up from there, okay, in your, in your ability to, to think and to, um, and to grow in Christ mentally. But in Scripture, sisters and brothers, the most knowledgeable is not the one who can win the game of Bible trivia. It's the one who wins the game of the Bible in life. That's who the scholar is in the eyes of God. Even Satan quotes the Bible to Jesus when he's tempting him. That's nothing special. But Jesus had true knowledge. The what, the why, the do. He knows the Bible, and he knows that God gave it, and 
you know, that's biblical knowledge. It's taking it, understanding it, and then being able to answer the question, okay, what in the world am I supposed to do with this? All right, how to develop a godly mind. There we go. There's some bullet points for you. Those of you who have your little note-taking devices out, <clears throat> we're going to come back to these, and I'll explain what these are. Um, first thing to do is ask God. Many Christians ask Siri more than they ask God. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. I know that sounds a little bit counterintuitive. Well, you can't just pray and get wisdom. Yes, you can. It happens all the time in the Bible. Let me give you a couple of examples. You remember when uh, God wants to grant Solomon a wish? Solomon, I'll grant you anything. Uh, what? Okay, I get one wish. I'd like wisdom. I want wisdom, God. And God says, okay, you're going to be the wisest man that's ever walked the planet. I'll give you that. And then I'll give you all the other stuff that most people would have asked for on top of that. And he bequeaths it to him. If you look through the reigns of the kings, uh, what makes a person considered a wise man or a fool is their obedience to God, whether they submit themselves to what God wants or uh, whether they don't. And the, uh, the, the king who is viewed as the wisest other than Solomon is a boy named Josiah. And he's viewed as the wisest ever, and he's somewhere between 9 and 12 years old. I mean, a boy. It's because when uh, the, the scroll of the law is brought to him, they didn't even know where it was. They had lost it. The priest of Israel didn't even know where the book of the law was kept. That's like his main job. Um, it's, like, it's like working at a fast food place and not knowing where the cash register is. It's, 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 it, it, he had one job, and he hadn't done it, and it, 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 he'd lost track of where it was. Well, they're doing construction, and somebody discovers this scroll. It happens to be the book of Deuteronomy. And so he takes it to Josiah. Josiah has it read to him, and it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart. He's like, we're not doing anything God asks us to do. We're doing everything that he forbids and doing nothing that he calls us to do. And so he gets everybody together and he institutes sweeping reforms. And the Bible says, that's wisdom. That's, that's wisdom. Now, it's not that the priest didn't know the book of Deuteronomy. I'm sure he did. But he didn't understand the book of Deuteronomy. He knew it. He didn't understand it. Understanding means this is what I get it. God, God is telling us to do these things. We should do those things. He's telling us to stop that. We should stop. And then doing it. Okay, that's wisdom. And that's why, for instance, the passage we read at the beginning in Mark 12 about loving God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself, it doesn't get a lot of sexy headlines. But Jesus says, those are the greatest commands. And I will tell you from personal experience, you can spend your whole life getting to the, like the, the out of your own end zone to the 10-yard line on those, to where you're loving God, you're trying to get up and, and, and live in the will of God, and you realize how far you have to go. It feels almost like every step you take, the, 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 you know, the, the end zone keeps moving further away. But God keeps calling you forward, and so you keep trying to go, okay, heart, mind, soul, strength, heart, mind, soul, strength, heart, and love my neighbor as myself. Well, that's easy. Not. I mean, and then the question, I mean, down to the point that, you know, in the Good Samaritan story, the question, well, who's my neighbor? He's trying to, like, kind of, you, you can't mean everybody. So tell me who I actually have to love. And Jesus will say, well... You've heard it said, 
different, different passage of scripture, but you've heard it said, you know, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, and so you spend your whole lifetime, you could spend your entire lifetime trying to obey one beatitude. That's how vast scripture is. As you know, I'm a big fan of Bible trivia, knowledge, all that stuff. I love all that stuff. But I love it because it helps me understand God and his will better. Not just because uh, it makes me the, uh, I don't know, some big bad dude at game night somewhere. Uh, if the Bible trivia for its own sake is relatively useless. There's no such thing as Bible trivia. There's just Bible Okay, so when we ask God, if the first thing, if you want God to bless you with knowledge and wisdom is to just ask him, as James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Number two, ask God first on everything, about everything. What I mean by that? I mean, whenever you're facing something, you need knowledge, you need wisdom, you need anything, you go to God first. That's an important reflex to develop. That means before I Google it, I go to God. Before, that doesn't mean there's no truth on Google. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying when you use Google, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, whatever, as your, as your point of reference, then that's the kind of knowledge you grow in. And, and the problem is that it's not righteous the way God's knowledge is. If you're looking for tips on parenting your kids, ask God first. And then submit the other knowledge to what the Bible says. Don't just go, again, don't go ask Siri before you ask God. It's that, that um, the realization that God is the one who actually has access to all knowledge. In Colossians 2, 2 through 3, it says this. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, and then get this line, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, verse 3. Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Can you really worship a God you don't think is very smart? See, to, to, to believe in God in part is to believe he knows things we don't know. And I know that we tend to think that our moment in time is the most complicated and chaotic time that's ever lived. A, go get to know some old people. They'll give you some perspectives. But beyond that, go look back at the pages of Scripture. I mean, you're talking about hundreds of years of war. You're talking about slavery for centuries, centuries. You're talking about just the stuff that these folks went through and the different kinds of challenges that they went through knowing that Every night when I lay down, that there are people living around me that want to kill me, and I don't have a lot of protection for myself. Okay. Out of those kind, that kind of life comes great wisdom, comes great clinging to God and asking for his, his protection and asking, uh, because he's desperate, David's desperate, these other biblical characters are desperate, and, and when we read their thoughts, we're getting great wisdom. In Jesus is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if you're a person whose primary reflex 
um, is to go to cultural resources rather than biblical resources as your frame of reference for problem solving or daily life, I would encourage you, turn to God first, okay? Next, stop and start somewhere. Um, so the, the, the spiritual masters, if you will, they talk about spiritual disciplines of, of abstinence and engagement. A discipline of abstinence would be something like fasting, okay? Fasting means I'm, I'm not eating something, okay? Feasting is eating, right? Um, so when you're looking about what you can do with your mind, there's a stop, there's some, pick something to stop and then pick something to start. I'll give you a, a simple example from my own life. Uh, I realized at one point that I was, and this ha kind of happened during COVID, I, uh, you know, the, the, the first wave when everybody's on lockdown, and your whole world's just kind of, your schedule's all messed up, and, and your routines are all messed up, and, and I realized I got in the habit of, as soon as I woke up, the first thing I would do is grab my phone and start scrolling news. And uh, whereas before that, my routine was I would get out of bed, and I would grab my phone, but I wouldn't look at it, and then I would wait until I was getting ready to take the shower or whatever, and then I'd get in the shower, get out, and then I would play a sermon from somebody else to just kind of get my day focused, uh, you know, and let it, you know, just feed myself a little bit spiritually. So what I realize now is I need to stop checking the news every morning, first thing, and I need to start doing something different, right? Like, like listening to a sermon or talking to my kids, first thing, before I look at the news and I'm all mad at the world, all right? Stop, start, okay? Pick something. Now, on the last sermon of this series, I'm going to give you a kind of a menu and let you pick some different habits, kind of concrete habits that are there, uh, and hopefully um, that'll be blessed. But my sense is you kind of know what those are, okay? So stop reading the news the first thing in the morning, for instance, and start reading your Bible instead. Those are, that's an example. And then here's the big one. Don't stop. Don't stop. Doing it for a day or two isn't going to really change your world. Like we talked about last week, it's like a uh, a lot of people will start doing something as a new habit and then they'll give it up because they don't see the results that they want as quickly. But most people who've been in the faith a very long time uh, will tell you that often those breakthroughs or those results, uh, you don't even see them until they're really put to, you're put to the test. Other times, people will quit when they're like right there, like we talked about the people mar marching around Jericho and quitting after lap six. What a tragedy that would have been. But a lot of people are like a 31-degree ice cube, getting warmer. They quit because, oh, it's not melting. Or, or water that's at, uh, you know, 211 degrees because it's not boiling. It's just about to, but you quit too soon. And so let me encourage you, instead of setting goals spiritually that are like, okay, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to read 10 chapters a day in my Bible. If you've never even read two days in a row before, don't do that. Say, I'm going to read uh, one chapter every other day, okay? And then do that, and then don't stop, and then add another chapter or another day of the week, and keep going, keep going, and don't stop. Uh, these are asides, but we'll come back to them next week, but um, I would highly encourage you to get around people who are trying to do the same thing you are. Community is one of the most powerful weapons you have at your disposal. And if you can find other Christians who are, are trying to, for instance, deepen their walk with God through prayer, deepen their walk with God through Scripture, or understand um, 
you know, the Bible better, how to study the Bible and things like that. We've got some new NVUs coming uh, this spring that I think you guys are going to dig. Sign up for those and show up and don't stop. Doing things one out of four times uh, is why a lot of times those results aren't seen. But if you do it with regularity and discipline, uh, you may be shocked. Now, I know some people are going, well, you're a preacher. You're supposed to read the Bible all the time. Well, yeah, but that's kind of what makes it hard. Um, I, is, is reading the Bible for God's own sake rather than sermon preparation, right? So that kind of makes it, makes it tricky. It's probably like a teacher going back to school. It's kind of like, I have to, <laughs> I got to find a way to, to make this, uh, to read it just devotionally, to read it just to feed my spirit and, and do things like that. Okay, I am out of time. So we're going to pause here. We'll come to the soul next week. And then we'll do the strength in week four on Vision Sunday too. So um, I hope what you're going to walk away with is, first of all, don't make the mistake of thinking that, uh, that just general knowledge of facts equals biblical knowledge. It does not. That what God wants for you is more like wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, according to Proverbs 1.7. So we begin there with humility. And then the knowledge that we seek, we rejoice that God has made us prescient beings that think, rational beings. And so we take that as something that's a bit of a sacred responsibility to continue to grow, continue to think, and then say, okay, God, if, if you help me increase this knowledge, I, I will offer it to you. I will dedicate it to you. And so whatever your field may be, take it, do it, you know, digest it, and then use it to glorify God rather than using a mind, if God's given you a brilliant mind, to do something that rebels against him or isn't, or, or to think that you're so brilliant in your own mind that your thoughts don't need to be taken captive, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So, with that in mind, let's love God with all our minds. I'm going to take the Lord's Supper at this time, uh, and so as the band to come on up, we have the elements, you should have got them on your way in if you didn't, um, go ahead and put your hand in the air like this, and we'll try to find you and get them to you. We do this every week at New Vintage. We take the Lord's Supper um, as a reminder of Jesus and what, all that he's done for us. And it is he who is, in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So right now, let us pray that the Lord would, would help us to learn to, to love him with our mind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for the intellectual uh, giants that have gone before us, Father, we thank you as a testimony to, um, to our creation in your image, the one who knows all, the one who's never stumped by a question, the one who never goes, I don't know, but the one who speaks and the planet obeys, the one who has given us our our mental faculties to glorify you with. And so, Father, may we not be like those who were walking the earth at the time of the flood or those who tried to build a tower to heaven to make a name for themselves, but instead, Father, may we try to make a name for you with our knowledge. Father, we thank you for being a God who is at the same time knowable and completely unknowable at the same time. So, Father, for what you've asked of us, we say yes, 
And we remember Jesus now in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We pray this in his name. Amen.